Welcome to the Wags of SEI podcast, where we discuss life, love, and caregiving after spinal cord injury, hosted by Elena Pauly and Brooke Paget. Both our partners are quadriplegics, and after connecting online in 2017, we began the advocacy and support group WAGS of SCI, which is an acronym for Wives and Girlfriends of Spinal Cord Injury. So you must be thinking, what is the goal with this group? Our goal is and has always been to establish and nurture a strong network of women around the world who understand and support one another while navigating the SCI life. We know firsthand the challenges that come with living this lifestyle. And our mission with this podcast is to spread education, awareness, and positivity from our unique perspective. So join us each week as we tackle deeper discussions around balancing life as a caregiver and a lover to someone with a spinal cord injury. Thank you so much for tuning in to the WAGS of SEI podcast. Here we go. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Wishart Brain and Spine Law. Led by our personal mentor and lawyer, Robin Wishart, Wishart Brain and Spine Law is a uniquely specialized law firm located in Vancouver, British Columbia. They focus their practice on complex spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury cases. And they work with clients all over North America as advocates and a much needed resource in the spinal cord injury community. Robin and her team look at their clients differently than other firms. You're not just a case, you're a person with a family, a life, and a purpose. They are always looking for ways to help improve the quality of life for their clients by providing the support they need for their recovery, such as assisting with insurance and benefits paperwork, finding resources for home adaptations, setting up medical appointments with doctors and specialists, and making sure that their clients are doing physically and mentally okay. Wish Our Brain and Spine Law is proud to support WAGS of SCI. Robin is committed to helping clients and their families any way that she can, because she wants you to live your life and not your claim. Your first consultation is always free. So contact them at brainandspinelaw.com and make sure to mention that the WAGS of SCI sent you. This podcast is brought to you in part by Megan Williamson, head coach at Ocean Rehab and Fitness. Live life with an SCI and looking to improve your fitness? Or maybe you're finished rehab and want to take the next step in strengthening your body. Megan Williamson at Ocean Rehab and Fitness now offers online adaptive training programs and one-on-one coaching to individuals around the world with spinal cord injuries. Visit www.oceaninsiderclub.com for more information on how you can get started on achieving a stronger you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wags of SEI podcast with your hosts, Elena Pauly and Brooke Paget. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we have a pretty exciting guest. Um, We're going to pick his brain about a lot of things medical and spine related. His name is Dr. Nav Sharma, and he is a physiatrist from Louisiana, and he's agreed to be on the podcast today. His list of qualifications is pretty extensive. Um, So he's got his undergraduate from Louisiana State University. Um, He did his residency at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center, and he's a board certified physiatrist on the American 
American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. He also has quite the list of credentials. So he is on the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, um, the Academy of Spinal Cord Injury Professionals, the Louisiana Medical State Society, Spine Intervention Society, American Medical Association, and the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. His philosophy is to empower patients through education and knowledge. And Dr. Sharma, we um, actually met him on Instagram. Um, He follows us and he's also friends with Cassandra and Eric. He's also the team doctor of Portugal the Man. And so that's how we met him. So uh, Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for being on today. We're super, super excited to talk to you today. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm uh, equally excited, and um, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, on this platform and to um, be a part of uh, this amazing uh, thing that y'all do and uh, to empower uh, folks with spinal cord injury and uh, their spouses and girlfriends and their support system. So it's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Can you just give us, a, I know Brooke just gave a whole mouthful of... <laughs> all of your credentials and everything that you've worked very hard to study and become. If if you could just give us a quick summary, how did you get into this? So how did you get into this profession? Why why did you choose to go down this path? Yeah, sure. Uh, I would love to talk about that. Essentially, um, I suffered from a uh, very severe injury, nothing Comparable to a spinal cord injury, not nearly as catastrophic, but when I was uh, 12 years old, I got into a, a little bicycle accident. And um, on so I, I, I was born and raised in India and on the streets of India, it's pretty chaotic. And so, um, you know, you have, you know, bicycles and uh, rickshaws and um, cows and uh, 18 wheelers, all, all it's, it's very, very chaotic. And so, Within that chaos, somehow I got into an accident with an 18-wheeler, and uh, it crushed my uh, right femur. And so I was essentially bed-bound for about six months at age 12. And then when I was 18 years old, because of the uh, complications that resulted from that injury, I had to have a a reconstructive surgery that included a large plate and a bunch of screws and things like that. And so that influenced and affected my uh, life growing up. You know, I wasn't able to play sports. And then uh, because I was also growing up during these years, my right leg, which was the uh, injured leg, it uh, sort of didn't grow as as much as my left one. So I also had this leg length discrepancy, which then affected my spine and then, you know, uh, caused other issues and problems. So when I was 18, I underwent this reconstructive surgery. And then after the surgery, I had this really long, drawn-out rehabilitation uh, experience that exposed me to the world of, you know, physical therapy and occupational therapy and and things like that. And so, I and then again, uh, the leg length discrepancy also um, caused a lot of issues in terms of dealing with the prosthetics, the narcotics world. So, physical medicine and rehabilitation, uh, which is a specialty in medicine deals with all of those fields, every one of them, prosthetics, orthotics, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. And so uh, that's sort of what um, captured uh, my interest. And then during medical school, I did a rotation with LSU uh, Physical Medicine and Rehab Residency Program. And I just absolutely fell in love with everything that uh, the specialty does because it's sort of a conglomeration of 
you know, neurology and orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery and rheumatology and internal medicine. And so within just this one field, you get a lot of different subspecialties and, um, and the rehabilitation process because we work so closely with all the therapists. I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then when I started to work with these people, they, I started to learn more about my own uh, uh, condition and what I could potentially do to improve my lifestyle and to how to um, make custom foot orthosis for myself. And so I had this personal interest in this field. And so I was like, well, this is a no-brainer. I need to you know, apply for this residency. And I was lucky enough to be accepted into it because it has become extremely competitive. It's up there with anesthesiology and... Um, and uh, ophthalmology and things like that. So uh, I consider myself extremely lucky to be a physiatrist. And then essentially from that point on, uh, my interest sort of grew more into the world of spine and, uh, and um, uh, doing more and more procedural work because it's just, uh, there is this level of instant gratification with these procedures I quite often I do these procedures where patients come in in a wheelchair and they literally walk out of here. And so that sort of reward is uh, rare in medicine um, because a lot of the uh, conditions that medicine treats are chronic. And so this level of personal gratification and instant gratification and helping uh, other folks just sort of was, was the reason why I got into this. Wow, that's incredible. And of course, as we all know, I feel like almost everybody at some point in their life needs a physiatrist or somebody who can help them out with, you know, physical ailments. And as we get older, not necessarily even accidents. These are things that we have to take care of our body with, right? You know, what's, sure. yeah. you know, what's interesting sure. to me, too, is I had no idea that the field of physiatry even existed before my partner sustained his accident. <laughs> yeah. Right. Totally. Yes. Uh, yes. It's uh, it's actually a running joke among physiatrists is uh, what exactly do you do? And even our family members, for instance, my parents, for the longest time when I was in the residency program, uh, they would, uh, you know, uh, you know, their friends would ask them, hey, what is your what is your son doing? Is he an internal medicine doctor? Is he a surgeon? What is he doing? And uh, and they wouldn't know how to explain it. They were like, yeah, it's, you know, it's phys- physical medicine and rehabilitation. And so they would, you know, in response, uh, people would ask, oh, OK, so is he a physical therapist? And so they would start saying, yes, he's a physical therapist, you know. And so the running joke is, is that <laughs> nobody really knows what do we do, um, which is interesting. And uh, um, it, it does make up for a really interesting conversation, too, because when people ask me, uh, what I do, I now I just say that I'm an interventional spine doctor, you know, I, I you know, but um, when I was in residency, it always came up as to what is physiatry. Uh, in fact, a lot of uh, physicians even, you know, don't know about what a physiatrist did and what he does uh, and things like that. So it's, it's, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Very few people know what a physiatrist is and how broad the field is and how many things we can do from performing surgical procedures, uh, full-blown surgeries on the spine to um, taking care of people with spinal cord injuries to performing electromyography and doing nerve conduction studies to being experts in in nerves and uh, musculoskeletal system and um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's ridiculous the amount of stuff that we are trained in. This is so cool. And this is why we're so excited to talk to you because the field is so it's endless as to what you guys can do. But also, Mm. you're going to know a lot about the potential, right? I mean, you're so experienced about nerves. And, you know, you've done the work in stem cells, you do procedures all the time to do with the spine. And so that's why we're super excited to talk to you about this. Um, Mm. Question for you, what does a day in the life of Dr. Nav look like? Uh, So, um, currently, um, I'm predominantly doing outpatient spine procedures that sort of takes about 80% of my time. About a year ago, I helped start a, um, inpatient rehab unit here in Ruston. Uh, there wasn't one. And so, uh, I, uh, the direct or, or the owner of this hospital approached me and said, Hey, I know you do a lot of spine outpatient spine stuff. Um, are you interested in bringing in uh, inpatient rehab unit for acute strokes and spinal cord injuries and things like that. And I, and I told him uh, that totally this area needs it. Let's do it. It took us a year to bring it here and it opened up during COVID times, obviously. So it's, it's sort of a slow, uh, start, but we have currently, we have anywhere between five to seven patients that, uh, that, that get, uh, referred to us after having a uh, acute uh, hospitalization at the uh, LSU health systems in um, in Shreveport, that's like the big hospital mm-hmm. that uh, that we have, and so um, so now I'm more and more involved on the on the inpatient rehab side as well. So I'm the director of the uh, of this unit, and uh, we admit patients with obviously strokes and traumatic brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. And, and then other uh, neurological issues and things like that. So I basically now have two full-time jobs, which is crazy because um, it's just me. So a day, basically Mondays and Thursdays are operating days where I do a lot of outpatient procedures, kyphoplasties, spinal cord stimulators, uh, decompressions, minimally invasive uh, lumbar spine and things like that. And then on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I round at the inpatient rehab unit. And then uh, Tuesday afternoons, we do the multidisciplinary team meetings where we, where all the therapists and the nurses and the case managers get together with me, and we go over the individual patients and sort of go over, you know, uh, how much progress are they making, what their goals are, are we reaching those those goals, what are some of the barriers to their discharge. Are they wanting to go home? Are they wanting to go uh, to a nursing home? What's the next, um, you know, disposition for these patients? So we do that mm-hmm. on Tuesdays. So yeah, it's 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 pretty hectic and busy, but um, I think that I wanted to really undertake this because of my passion for uh, the inpatient rehab mm-hmm. setting, because it's just such. Some of these injuries are so catastrophic, including spinal cord injury that you need to have a good team and I'm working on assembling that team to kind of provide a really good standard of care to these, to these folks and their family members and support. Because what happens in small towns like uh, this, where I am in Ruston is that a lot of the times um, uh, patients with uh, these injuries end up at a level of care that is inappropriate, for instance, because of a lack of placement they can end up in an LTAC, which is a long-term acute care, where they barely get any therapies. And that's not what people need, you know, especially spinal cord injury patients. You know, they need 
intensive PT and OT, at least three hours a day, in my opinion. Um, and so they get placed at a lower level of care because there wasn't a facility around. And those folks generally don't do that well once they get discharged naturally because they just weren't uh, trained and their spouses and family members weren't trained in the way that a inpatient rehab unit would train you. That's such a great uh, point that you make there about not being trained. And Brooke and I talk about this all the time, being the caregivers to our our partners. Um, you know, it's we're not trained and our partners do come home and they, they do require all of the outpatient rehab that we're just unable to provide. And especially during COVID and the pandemic, it's become um, extra strenuous on the caregivers to take on that extra role um, as you know, caring for the patient, but also trying to kind of fill in those gaps for the physiotherapy. Oh, yeah, yeah no, uh, totally. Because uh, we are, a lot of the facilities are not allowing uh, uh, friends and family to visit the patients because of COVID. And so if you, if they're not allowed in the facility, how do you train them? And then, and then these patients are being discharged home. And yeah, you're right. I mean, there is obviously home health, PT and OT and speech, and you can do outpatient PT, OT and speech. But 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 the 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 support system, the family members absolutely have to be trained because a lot of the times um, the injured uh, person is totally uh, they rely upon the caretakers. So I think I think patient education is obviously very important in these scenarios, but Family education is equally important, if not more important, to identify things. You know, to identify things like, you know, uh, is the patient having a UTI or are they having a a pain in their thigh that could be heterotopic ossification to identify when the patient needs to be seen by a physician, as opposed to, oh, you know what, these are just normal sequelae of uh, spinal cord injury. It's just normal. Uh, and then assume that it's normal and then things get worse. So it's it's so important to... Totally. To, yeah. And and you know what's really interesting, and Brooke and I were talking about this recently, was about AD symptoms and how AD symptoms automatically autonomic dysreflexia show up in the patient and that, you know, we're talking about caregivers rights and caregiver awareness right now with November, which is around caregivers um, awareness. And, and, you know, these are people taking care of their spouses that are unpaid, but they're take on all these jobs and all these tasks and you wear a lot of hats. You end up, you know, becoming the nurse who's, who needs to know when, serious symptoms present themselves and when it's an emergency and we don't have that kind of training we get sent home without even knowing how to properly transfer um our partners from you know chair to bed and such so i love that you say that that is very important for the family members to be trained it's it's very very important because at the end of the day we are the ones that are still here yeah and totally and elena i i speak for both of us elena and myself when i say that the majority of our quote education was was us arriving at our partner's rehabilitation center at 7 a.m. Um, and observing and just paying attention and showing interest um, and trying to do these things like um, catheters, ICPs, bowel programs, skin checks, just observing the professionals do it because we were not provided any sort of training. So it was kind of up to us in our off time to observe and just pay attention so that when we took our partners home, we were able to understand what was going on. And, you know, we 
Dr. Nav, we have a private group on Facebook with over 1,200 women um, that privately discuss the issues of spinal cord injury and what they deal with. Um, a lot of it is medical concerns that they're not qualified to assess and they, they just don't know. And so, like Elena was saying, we kind of take on the hat of like <laughs> nurse doctor, you know, professional Googler after this, because it's just there's so much unknown, especially when it comes to the spinal cord. Um, and it's just it's frustrating a lot of times because, you know, it's just there's so much to know and there's not enough education. So I'm really glad that you you said what you said. Yeah, uh, let me touch on um, a few of those things that you um, just mentioned. Number one, you know, identifying autonomic dysreflexia is imperative. It's so important because it's literally uh, a medical emergency. You're, you know, because there is this uh, this synergy between the autonomic nervous system and the sympathetic response. And because of the spinal cord injury, the body is not able to correct this. So the body attempts to decrease the blood pressure by, you know, carotid and aortic, you know, vagal-mediated bradycardia, but then it doesn't work out because the rest of the body is not responding to it. And now you have this really, really crazy high blood pressure that can cause other um, really, really devastating injuries such as stroke. It can even cause death. So, you know, that is so critical to identify because it can result in something even worse, you know. And um, in terms of intermittent catheterization or bowel program, all those things can cause autonomic dysreflexia if it's not being uh, taken care of on a regular basis. So it all is extremely important. And in a, in a spinal cord injury patient, the injury itself is so complex and complicated uh, that it's very difficult for, uh, you know, even professionals to understand all the nuances and everything that's happening and not happening and the dysfunction that results from it. So um, knowing those things can be critical, and it's amazing and it's really, really empowering for the community that you all have created to be able to educate other uh, caretakers that, hey, you know what? I think that this, this is something that can be potentially serious. You need to take your spouse to the physician because, and don't wait on it. Just something as simple as that can be life-saving. Totally. And there's a lot of times that we do that where, you know, these women just immediately, like, I know when you post something that's concerning, especially when it comes to skin or like um, something that needs to have some, a second set of eyes on it, because you're not sure what's going on. These women, they respond literally within seconds. And it's just like, Oh, thank God for that. But also it's kind of like, you know, go to your doctor. But a lot of these women's doctors have no clue about spinal cord injury. Like you were saying earlier, like they just, they don't know about AD. They don't know about the complications and it ends up being like a, you know, a hamster wheel of just constantly trying to guess what's going on. And so that's why I'm really glad what you're doing in your, your smaller town. Um, I think uh, that needs to just be done in every small town, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, the level inpatient rehab is just so important. There is no other way to, there is no better placement for an acute spinal cord injury patient to go to other than an inpatient rehab unit uh, with intensive three hours of PT and OT and occasionally speech for those higher uh, level uh, tetra uh, plegics who are trached and, you know, those trachs need to be monitored and take, taken care of. I mean, 
you name it. So um, in my opinion, every single, you know, spinal cord injury patient, which, you know, approximately there are 18,000 new cases of spinal cord injury each year, obviously, you know, different levels, but, uh, you know, each one of those patients need to end up in a, in a uh, in, uh, inpatient rehab unit right off the bat and not the other way around. But that's not the case because not every small town has a facility. And oftentimes we see somebody with a spinal cord injury that was admitted to the you know wrong level of care, like a skilled nursing facility or a uh, long-term acute care. And now they're showing up you know, six months later into an inpatient rehab unit and it's so much damage had already been done that it's just difficult to reverse it, you know. Um, You know, no splints were used to prevent contractures, you know, spasticity wasn't addressed. Now they have this, you know, chronically indwelling catheter that has completely messed up the bladder, you know. Um, I mean, you name it, you know. So, it's it's really sad, but I mean, I think that for you to make, um, you know, spouses and caretakers aware on 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 your medium and and Facebook and Instagram, you know, that's I think it's a huge support system. I think nationwide and even so, are are y'all in Canada? So we are. So Brooke and I are actually located and based out of Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay. Um, we you might know us from hosting the 2010 Olympics. <laughs> So not us personally, obviously. Yeah, in Whistler. Um, But we actually have about, what is it, 25 uh, worldwide ambassadors um, across the globe now. So these are women that are point of contact in areas such as South Africa, the UK, across the States, Germany, Greece now. So we try to kind of expand our community to be able to provide information um, for, you know, things like mental health, which is very important for a caregiver. Oh, to... my God, yes. That's <laughs> a topic on its own, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I actually want to just kind of, I know that we have you for a short time, so I just kind of want to jump in into a couple SCI-related uh, questions sure. that I was hoping you could answer. And one of them, you were saying how important to have outpatient rehab is. Um, I have a question for you around bone density. So, you know... <laughs> I mean, our guys are stuck in chairs now. They're not standing. And I I guess I'm wondering how important, I know that they're weight bearing and doing that, but how important is it to take vitamin D or use a standing frame? And and at what rate do your bones start to weaken and become brittle? Or how, how crucial is it to address falls right away? I'm just wondering, do you, can you give us some advice around bone density and what the best thing to do to prevent um, the decaying of bones or weakening of bones? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, number one thing is is that if you look at the demographics of uh, spinal cord injury, and this hasn't changed, uh, you know, since um, since we started collecting data, but um, essentially, if you look at the epidemiology, there is a four to one uh, male to female ratio that that has not changed, you know, since. Uh, 2004 is the last time that uh, that I, I looked at it, uh, and so um, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because um, because there is a four to one male to female ratio. Majority of the people with uh, spinal cord injury are males, and so um, for the males, it's actually 
our body is sort of protective in 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 terms of um, osteoporosis and uh, weakening of the bone, but that that doesn't mean that you know we can't do a better job preventing uh, any bone loss uh, and things like that. So my recommendation would be, yeah, absolutely, you know. Um, vitamin D is, is very, very important. It's not just a vitamin. Vitamin D is actually a hormone that controls and affects uh, the, both the male body and the female body. It has so many functions. I mean, all, all you have to do is Google it and just like it has unbelievable amount of function, not just with calcium metabolism, but with also uh, the overall functioning of the renal system and the and uh, other systems. So vitamin D is obviously very important, and I encourage it. Now, calcium supplements, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't think I would recommend that because of uh, something called a heterotropic ossification, uh, which is a formation of a bone and soft tissue. And in a, in the spinal cord injury population, uh, the most predominant area that it occurs in is at the hip level, uh, anterior greater than posterior. So uh, you would have, uh, you know, an area of your quad that would start to, uh, you know, have pain. And um, it's most likely in a spinal cord injury population is going to be the heterotropic ossification, which, you know, again, is, is, it, can, it can be very painful and uh, it needs to be addressed. So giving extra calcium, you know, in my opinion, may not be very good in, in that sense, unless, unless, of course, uh, osteoporosis has already been uh, diagnosed. Um, and so in terms of bone density scan, I would say that, um, oh, the other thing I want to tell you epidemiology-wise is that most spinal cord injury patients are in their uh, uh, mid to late 30s. And so, um, you know, healthy young males with excellent musculoskeletal system, excellent bones. And so, uh, for the first, you know, earlier on in the injury, like the, for the first couple of years, um, it's it's going to be okay in terms of bone loss. But yes, once they are obviously bed-bound or wheelchair-bound and they're not getting um, a gravitational effect of standing and walking, uh, the bones do, well, you would, you would notice that the muscles are the first one to atrophy. You know, uh, spinal cord injury patients obviously get, you know, very, very skinny legs just because of the atrophy. Uh, but the but the bones tend to hold up longer, and but eventually they start to deteriorate as well. So in my opinion, early on, it's not such a great issue. I would say that if you have anterior or or in general thigh pain, whether it's anterior or posterior, get a bone density scan immediately because it could be heterotrophic ossification, which once it starts, it doesn't really go away. Now that calcification is permanent and your soft tissue, your muscles are now replaced by calcium, which is very, which can be very painful also. Um, and so that's one indication for getting um, um, bone density scan if you're having a pain in your, uh, in your legs. Uh, the second indication would be that now it has been uh, two, three, four, five years, 10 years. Now you're in your 40s and 50s as a patient, and um, it's been 20 years now. Um, now we are starting to worry about bone mineral density. And so, you know, it should be a standard, uh, I think, for the primary care physicians or even a physiatrist that, hey, somebody shows up 10 years, 20 years down the line let's get a bone density scan to see if they're having osteoporotic uh, or osteopenia and then uh, treat that with vitamin D and calcium. I would say one thing is that heterot 
tropic ossification occurs like early on in the injury. So now if the if 10 years have passed by and that hasn't happened, most likely with additional uh, calcium supplements and vitamin D supplements, most likely it's not going to happen. The important thing to know here is that if you have pain in your quads, hamstrings, get a bone density scan because it could be HL, um, which which is treated, you know, it's 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 uh, not a very difficult treatment. Uh, you know, bisphosphonates and uh, other medications can definitely help treat those things. Which bisphosphonates are also used for treatment for osteoporosis. So it's like now you're killing two birds with one stone. You know, interesting. This um, is so interesting because a lot of our followers um, and their partners do not have access to a physiatrist. Um, here in Vancouver, our system is a little bit different. My husband visits his physiatrist once a year, um, if not more, sometimes every six months. And it's just not available. Well, our system is very different. I don't know if you're familiar with the Van- uh, the Canadian healthcare system, but it's doctors are available to anyone at any time. Um, it's public, so it's very different. So, But most of our, our listeners are from the U.S. And so this is so, so great to hear because... Like I said before, they may not even know what a physiatrist is, but to be able to hear this from you is so, so helpful, um, especially since a lot of the women, um, especially lately, we've been discussing this a lot, have been talking about standing frames and the importance of standing frames and how they're getting denied um, from their insurance companies because their insurance companies are saying that standing frames are not medically necessary. Um, I know for our standing frame at our house, we literally got it approved right away with a note from his physiatrist and GP because they both said, no, this is medically necessary. Like it is right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, don't get me started on the insurance companies. I mean, I would, I would probably have a stroke if I start talking about them, but, Same. um, it's, <laughs> it's really, it's really aggravating because, you know, um, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to talk too much trash about insurance companies, but, you know, honestly, like if you think about the long term consequences of not providing a standing frame, those, you know, they're going to end up paying a lot more for the uh, uh, complications that would result from it. Right. Like, okay, now you didn't provide the standing frame. Now the patient has uh, uh, contractures and now you need to, um, you know, provide for them. corrective bracing or like serial casting or like Botox treatment, which is crazy expensive, but they're not thinking about the future. They're thinking about right here, right now, what can we do to save some of these dollars right now? And so I think what they need to do is they need to look at the long-term consequences of not providing the standing frame, which obviously stretches the patient out. It helps with spasticity. It helps with bone density. It helps with, uh, um, uh, uh, reinforcing the musculoskeletal system that then has a positive feedback effect on the brain and all these things just the just standing itself has this effect on the body that that brain recognizes that oh i was in this wheelchair for like last you know 6 months to a year and now i'm finally standing and 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 there's this biofeedback that occurs that makes the brain feel better the body feel better the stretch itself helps the musculoskeletal system out. Uh, it prevents, in my opinion, uh, contractures and helps with spasticity um, and uh, reinforces the uh, the bone mineral dense, uh, density. Uh, and so if you look at all those things, it's totally worth it for the insurance company to approve it and pay for it. But obviously, somebody has to outline and write all that stuff, which physicians are crazy busy. And for 
you know, them to sit down and write a letter of necessity takes time. So a lot of them don't do it right. But that doesn't mean that it's not necessary. You know, it's totally necessary. And I would say that about physiatrists, uh, you know, our listeners, if, if you're listening, if you're having in general, not just with the spinal cord injury population, but in my opinion, if you're having any neurological pain just as a spouse or as a caretaker, because, you know, with transfers and things like that, you can also tweak your back. Like you have to take care of your health way, like equally and, and consider that equally important uh, than your spouses uh, or as much as your spouses, because if you are not in good health, it's going to take care of them. So if you uh, hurt your back or if you're having a neurological pain or nerve pain or anything like that, I would recommend to start with a physiatrist every time. There's no better physician to see for musculoskeletal and nerve pain than a physiatrist. That's, That's really good advice. Quickly. That's really yeah. good advice. That's right. Elena, how Don't many women long. <laughs> Elena, how many women in our community do we know right now that have that are experiencing uh, back issues um, from improper transfers or just too much stress and not uh, really no, looking no. after themselves, right? It's a huge thing in our community, so I'm really glad that you I think that everybody. <laughs> yeah, I think basically everybody. It's funny because I went to the chiropractor the other day and the chiropractor said what brings you here? And I said, five years of caregiving. And then it was, and then when it came time to pay for my bill, they said, Oh, do you have extended health? I said, extended health and benefits for what, for being an unpaid caregiver? No, I don't. <laughs> so, but fix me, you know, and that's the case with a lot of women. Um, I want to just quickly hop into something that is quite controversial on our end, but I'm dying to know your opinion. Let's talk about epidural stimulation for a second. I would like to know, do you have confidence in epidural stimulation or is there another area of research that will be, you know, groundbreaking or could be groundbreaking that that people need to pay attention to? You know, um, um, uh, that's yeah. Uh, so epidural stimulation and a stimulation of the spinal cord in general, uh, you know, it's something that I haven't read a lot of uh uh, literature on. Um, I, I need to do that personally. So I would defer that because I personally haven't educated myself on a lot of it. I know that, you know, uh, the uh, studies and research are ongoing, but I think it should be, uh, it should, it, it does show promise, you know, uh, preliminary. Um, uh, but the other area that I would, that I'm excited about, and I think that uh, the FDA and the U.S. government I need to do a better job opening this up would be um, the potential for a stem cell uh, for the acute spinal cord injury. I uh, know that there are some, you know, non-FDA approved clinics uh, in um, uh, foreign countries like Panama and uh, Belize or predominantly Panama. There is this physician, I can't remember his name right now, but, uh, you know, I don't know how effective it is and how reliable his data is. But the idea of doing an intrathecal uh, stem cell injection at the time of the injury or very close to it, um, you know, what are the possibilities and what, what's, what's the potential to heal some of the damage to the anterior horn cells in the spinal cord um, and to sort of minimize the damage to preserve some of the uh, level? Um, for instance, you know, C5 is the most common spinal cord injury. Well, when you take out C5, you lose your biceps, uh, which is elbow flexion, which is extremely, extremely, extremely important ADLs. Now, if you inject uh, stem cells, um, 
And and again, stem cells is a very, very, you know, a controversial topic because number one, where are you getting it from? Like, are they amniotic stem cells? Are they stem cells taken from the patient? Uh, so mm-hmm. all that. All Sorry, that, can you can you explain yeah. the two different types uh, to our audience? Let's say they don't know anything about yeah. the two different types of stem cells. So yeah. can you go into a bit of details and really just kind of, you know, explain it to somebody who doesn't know like me? Well, just to sure. let you know, Dr. Nav, there's a lot. Uh, stem cells are discussed a lot in our group, in our community. Um, it's like literally the first thing people look into and want to do. Um, however, it is enormously expensive. Um, and there are a lot of downsides. Um, you know, I don't know if you're, you're probably aware of that. So yeah, do you want to get into like just stem cells in general and, and how they work? Yeah, sure. We can, we can, uh, briefly talk about that. Um, so basically, um, stem cells, uh, when you hear the terminology itself, it's like saying, uh, uh, white blood cells. Uh, and the reason why I'm comparing it to them is because white blood cells, there are numerous different types of white blood cells. There is, you know, T cells and B cells. And and similarly, when you say stem cells, it's it's a it's an umbrella. What's uh, what's under it, it needs to be further subdivided into different categories. And one of them is going to be the uh, amniotic uh, fluid or the umbilical cord products, which are basically um, delivery products after birth. And so uh, those stem cells are pluripotent stem cells. Um, that's one type. The second type is mesenchymal stem cells, which are al- already in your body and they are found in your bone marrow and also in your adipose tissue or fat. Um, so those are two different types. And um, um, whenever somebody's saying, I'm gonna go get stem cell injections, they need to find out exactly what the product is, where it's coming from, where is it, like, is it coming from, who, where, where did the company get it from? Did they buy a bunch of placentas from like, uh, you know, a foreign country and imported it, like, you know, are, and, and, and can, can they guarantee that the sample that they're injecting have actually has stem cells? Uh, you know, it's, th- there was a pod, uh, podcast that I listened to, it was called um, Bad Batch. It was about these. Uh, yes, I listened to that one as well, actually. Yeah, like, you know, so I mean, so I mean, uh, when when some independent researchers took those samples and they um, ran it through, uh, they found like zero stem cells in those samples, but they were being injected as stem cells, and people people were paying you know you know five thousand dollars for those injections, which was nothing but bunch of dead tissue. Uh, so there is a lot. It's 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 you know there's a lot of fraud occurring in this arena, and it's really difficult to trust you know who has the right product or, or who has the product that they claim it really is. Because when you go to the doctors and they say we're injecting something, you just trust them. You know, you just trust that it's the, it's the thing that they are telling you that it is that, you know, that vial that was just injected into your body has a bunch of stem cells. Um, but a lot of the times that is not the case. And, you know, that podcast really brought that to light. Is this why, is this the reason why the U.S. doesn't provide those same things as like Panama, Panama and over in Europe um, as far as like for paralysis? Is that why? Just because uh, like why, why is it that it's not available openly in the U.S.? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that FDA is just, you know, worried that, you know, um, uh, that a lot of uh, a lot of people who want to make a lot of money would uh, sell things that are that are dead tissue essentially and have no live or viable stem cells in the product. And then again, it's uh, it's really difficult to regulate it because um, any biotech company can, you know, purchase a placenta or amniotic fluid um, or umbilical cord, um, and then you know, you know, sell it for a certain price and may not have anything viable. And then the safety issue uh, for 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 somebody to inject a another person's uh, like tissue into uh, into a patient, it has to be obviously sterile because you know bacteria can grow into it. And 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 that uh, bad batch podcast showed that a bunch of people came down with a. Uh, really, really horrible infections that led them to be hospitalized for weeks at a time. And some people nearly died because the infection was so severe, like sepsis, you know? Yeah. And so, wow. That's scary. You know, so, yeah, it's totally. And then again, you know, patients go in with such great hopes of, you know, of being healed. And this, because it's not covered by insurance, some people are taking loans out. Some people are you know, exhausting their life savings to have something injected that may not even have a single live stem cell in it. So I think that FDA is trying to protect the public in general, but what the FDA and the U.S. government need to do is to open it up to legitimate um, companies who actually want to study it, who actually uh, want to do it the right way. Um, but you know, um, that's just a regulatory and a political side of things. So, um, it's yeah, really interesting. It's, it's, it's crazy because I mean, you can sell hope, right? That's what it is when people are so desperate in their current condition, when they're ill, it's, yeah. you will pay yeah. anything. You will do anything to get out of your body or the feelings of pain or discomfort that you become so desperate that you will, you know, kind of go to these measures, um, as I would say this. Resort. I would say this, that a probably safer measure would be to take, uh, a, let's say, for instance, somebody uh, is in a car accident and now they have a spinal cord injury. Uh, I would say that, you know, um, intraoperatively, uh, get into their uh, bone marrow supply, take, you know, um, large quantity of the bone marrow and then um, use um, some sort of, uh, you know, either a bedside uh, machine or a lab that can extract the stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells from the bone marrow. Now it's the patient's stem cells. So number one, uh, you keep things sterile. Number two, it's the patient's stem cells. So the chances of any injury resulting from that would be a lot less. And then inject it directly at the site of injury, like go into the epidural space, even go past the epidural space into the intrathecal space at the level of the injury and inject it and see what happens and study that and research that and see what kind of outcomes we get. That's really cool. That, Are people doing that right now? Are doctors doing that uh, right now? No, because I, uh, you know, it would have to be a, uh, a big study and it would have, you know, somebody needs to get in, not to my knowledge, if they're doing it, I don't know. And I probably need to research it because, uh, that would be the place to go if you're having a spinal cord injury to kind of try to use that as an experimental or investigational uh, option. But to my knowledge, you know, uh, it's not a, it's not happening in Louisiana. That's for sure. Um, right. But but I mean, 
Not um, here either. Definitely not here. No. Yeah. Yeah. Not I mean, yet. I do, I do stem cell injections from the patient's bone marrow into the knees and into other joints and things like that. So why not the spinal cord? I just, you know, don't see, um, you know, it being obviously going into the spinal cord is is a lot more, a lot riskier. But I, I, you know, do a lot of epidural steroid injections in the neck area and transfer aminal epidural steroid injections, which are considered high risk procedures. So I don't I don't see why we can't do that, but I would think that it would have to be a uh, a big study, and I would have, mm-hmm. have to get an IRB and uh, you start enrolling patients, which is you know obviously a uh, academic setting stuff, and I'm not in in academic medicine. Okay, I was gonna say, well, we're gonna follow your journey because <laughs> you'll be the first one to do this, and, <laughs> no. and we'll send our guys down. Um, I have another question for you. What is yes. your opinion around tendon transfers? Um, I know that through rehab, for instance, both of our partners are quadriplegics, and this was a conversation that came up quite frequently as an option for our uh, partners to have more of a pinch, let's say, to be able to have a better grip. So, what is your opinion around tendon transfers? How successful are they? Do you know anything about that? It can restore, uh, you know, triceps function, you know, in somebody who has a C6 spinal cord injury, uh, you know, and then uh, the lateral grip, you know, it can be restored in those patients. um, And it's called modified uh, uh, Moberg procedure, Uh, basically involves attachment of uh, the brachioradialis muscle uh, to the flexor pollicis longus, which is the, uh, the thumb you know, and it and stabilizes the thumb, um, carpal, metacarpal uh, joint, and uh, interphalangeal joint. So it can uh, allow you to uh, grip things, which is so useful, um, as y'all know. Uh, and I think that one works uh, relatively well. Uh, is that the one you were specifically talking about, the tendon transfer? That is the one, the one for the pinch um, that basically that's exactly it. So I think from what I know, the recovery time is about six months. So you typically would go for the procedure and then you don't have um, you do one arm at a time um, and you don't have the use of that one arm for roughly six months. And then after that, I've heard that I've also heard that it's quite successful and it really could change the quality of life for somebody to be more independent if had they had more of a grip, right? Instead of... Oh my uh, God, it changes so many things. Now you're able to, you know... Everything. It changes everything. I mean, literally, like you can uh, operate the... You can get a different type of uh, um, uh, motorized wheelchair because of that. You know, you can get... uh, You can start to, um, you know... Uh, grasp and grab things, which which is basically the first step in all ADLs, is to be able to grab things, and then right. you know you can use adaptive equipment to feed yourself or that's to, right. You know, so it can, can self care, really self care. You know, yeah, uh, self so. self care, independence, and there's nothing better when you can kind of you know, I know like for at least our partners when they accomplish a, another new milestone when they when they're able to do something new uh throughout their journey is it's like it's a big celebration you get a bottle of wine for that and some champagne you know it's so it's so inspirational to watch those stories on your instagram feed i was watching one earlier today where this gentleman was uh putting his shoes on and i was just you know it 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 gives me goosebumps and chills because i'm like oh my Mm -hmm. god that is so awesome you know because something as simple that we we consider simple 
to put right. your shoes and your clothes on that we take it for granted. It's you know it's a it it could be like climbing a mountain for 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 our for our spinal cord injury patients and and you know it I don't know it just it's so inspiring you know uh, you know mm-hmm. you know people like Eric Hawk are are so inspiring you know uh, you know uh, or uh, um, who's the Olympian Amy Van Dyke. Mm-hmm. Amy Van Dyke, the swimmer, yeah, the six-time yeah. medalist, yeah, she's like yeah. top of my list too. She's so inspiring. It's so funny because I used to, I was a, um, a nationally competitive synchronized swimmer in high school, and Amy was like, I literally had a poster of her on my wall when I was a wow. teenager. Um, wow. She was so inspiring. And then when this happened, just to use her voice and that in this kind of way, when she had her accident, I messaged her a little while ago. I was like, Amy, you don't know me, but I love you. You're so inspiring. Like, thank you for what you're doing doing for the community. So I'm glad you brought it up. You know, this brings us into our next question for you, actually. Um, How did you meet Eric Hawk of Portugal, the man? How did you get involved in, in the music scene? Yeah. So, uh, um, um, essentially when I was in uh, New Orleans training, um, I would, uh, volunteer, um, with the, uh, uh, occasionally I didn't get a lot of time to do this, but a few times I volunteered with the, uh, uh, musicians clinic and the reason why I was so uh, interested in music is because I'm a musician myself and so I was always drawn to it and so um, and and uh, a lot of the musicians in New Orleans are um, are not very well off meaning they don't have health insurance and so they rely upon the system uh, that uh, uh, Bethany Baltman uh, helped start uh, down in New Orleans called the New Orleans Musicians Clinic which is funded by the state uh, at a certain level through LSU, I believe. And so uh, during during that time, um, I I was also uh, attending a lot of uh, concerts and shows in New Orleans. And one of the shows during uh, my, my uh, medical school uh, time frame was uh, Portugal the Man came down and played at the House of Blues, and um, our. <laughs> It's interesting because I skipped an exam, uh, a medical school exam, to go watch these guys. Um, and so uh, I got there a little earlier and um, I ran into, and at that time, this is like 2011 or 2012. And at that time, you know, uh, the guys were like helping their crew members, like bring in the equipment and things like that. You know, they were actually helping out. And so uh, I saw them outside and I was in my scrubs, my, you know, surgical scrubs. And so they're like, oh, hey, man. I was like, hey, uh, I'm, I'm so-and-so. And we just took pictures and things like that. And then um, um, when I came, when I, when I uh, finished my specialty training and uh, started uh, working in the private sector, when I quote-unquote made it big, uh, Portugal the Man also came up big around the same time. You know, they had... Uh, very successful album previous to that, Evil Friends, but um, nothing like the Woodstock album, which Feel It Still kind of made them infamous. And um, that's when I um, got on uh, Instagram. I had just joined and I um, der- uh, messaged uh, Zach from Portugal the Man and I sent him that picture that, that we took uh, in, back in 2011. And he totally remembered me. <laughs> And so uh, I was like, hey, man, uh, you know, I'm 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 doing a lot of, uh, you know, musicians health stuff. And I don't know if you 
guys, you know, have any health issues or, you know, I know musicians are just terrible patients. They don't take care of themselves. Not, and this is a, you know, this is generalization, but most of the time, they're <laughs> totally. just, they, most of the time they're just traveling and uh, nonstop and, you know, health becomes like a secondary thing, you know? Um, and so I was like, you know, if you guys need anything, so he's like, yeah, totally. You know, um, I have some things that I want to talk to you about. And then they invited me to, uh, it was Austin City Limits about four years ago or so. And uh, that's when I met Eric. Um, and um, I was just completely blown away because, you know, Austin City Limits being at such a huge music festival uh, still had issues with accessibility. And so, um, you know, Zach was basically picking up the wheelchair from behind and uh, helping Eric get down ramps and stairs and into their green room and back into the bus. And I was just so mind blown by this whole experience that not only, you know, the fact that Eric, you know, is a amazing rock star and just has so much life and uh, so much passion is just a phenomenal, amazing hero a personal hero of mine, but also into the, in the spinal cord injury world and in, in the disability world in general, but also how the crew around him and his bandmates just helped every step of the way. And it was almost like, um, no, I don't know how to say this, but it was like nobody was like actually paying attention to the fact that Eric was in a wheelchair. It was just normal. Like it was, it was not even anything... Uh, extraordinary. It was just being done on every level possible. And I, so, you know, I hung out with Eric during that particular visit and, you know, got to know about, you know, his injury and how it happened and how it affects him and um, how he, you know, was so sick and tired of taking all these medications, you know, like Cymbalta and Neurontin and Amitriptyline, and which which caused a certain level of fogginess and haziness. And so he was like, made a conscious decision that he's just gonna not take those medications anymore. And he did it. And when I met him, he wasn't taking a single medicine. It was just so impressive because most of my spinal cord injury patients take a lot of medications. And so, yeah. um, so it, it ends was, up being a little cocktail of, of goodies, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not pushing that, you know, philosophy on our listeners that, you know, you should stop taking medications, but it just goes on right. to show you that maybe with, uh, some creative outlet, you know, maybe with, with, with other things that are not exposed, Lord, that we haven't talked about, perhaps it is possible to reduce dose and to provide um, um, pain relief to the neuropathic pain that a lot of uh, people with spinal cord injury suffer from, uh, or maybe even there is a possibility to stop the medications and it just nobody's actually looking at it. You know what I mean? 
I'm so happy that you brought this up because Elena and I were just talking about this. So we actually talk about this, yeah. I would say daily, right? Elena, all the time. Um, yeah, all is, the time. Like we're, my husband is lucky. He, um, he's always been, he was a mountaineer. He's a very natural twig and berries kind of guy. Uh, before his injury and he's continued that on and he is not on a single pharmaceutical medication as well so him and Eric have that in common um, and he's we see on a daily basis Dr. Nav, we see what medications can do to people and how the complications and the side effects can just impact them so much to the point where it's like debilitating from the medications and the antibiotics and all that kind of stuff. And it just becomes a vicious cycle. And I remember when my husband was first injured, his pain doctor came into the room when he was still in ICU and he was saying, okay, we've got you on this, 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 and this. And my husband's like, well, why? And he's like, well, uh, it's just cause it's what we do. And he's like, yeah. well, is there, is there any way I can get off this and this and the ones that are not necessary? And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem. So he took them off and he never needed them again. And, and I feel like it's kind of a thing in hospitals where it's just like, you're, you're a number and you get prescribed something that everybody else gets prescribed and you don't even know if your body requires it. Right. You don't even know if it's necessary yet. Right. I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. That. I mean, I, I completely agree. Um, that it happens very, very often in the hospital system. And then basically it's your discharge medications. And guess what? You basically uh, carry on your discharge medications at home, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and how do you as a physician even assess whether a patient needs it or not? I mean, the only way to do it is to try to decrease it or to stop it and then see if the symptoms get worse and then restart it. That's the only way to do it. And a lot of doctors, quite honestly, including myself, Number one, are so short pressed for time that yeah. you know, that that stopping something and then taking the risk of making your patient worse is not even worth it. And number two, um, you know, you could potentially harm your patients by stopping those medications because again, uh, interrupting meds can also have issues and problems. But that's not to say that it shouldn't be explored. And the first time I ever, the thought even crossed my mind was after talking to Eric. I was like, holy cow, this is a possibility for my patients to not be on all these meds wow. that make them that make them foggy and that make them uh, not experience life to the same um, um, intensity that Eric does or your husband does, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really know. cool. Yeah, it was really eye-opening, really, and 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 you know, subsequent interaction with him have also been very, very eye-opening. Um, and so, um, I asked Eric, uh, was like, hey, whenever, whenever I do open my own inpatient rehab unit, would you consider coming down here and talking to my patients? Because that would be really cool. And of course, he he did agree. He's just a great guy. But you know, of course, now there's we live in the world of COVID, and traveling is. Is stopped so now, but it, hopefully in the future, you know, I can have him down here and uh, and uh, you know, motivate my patients because yeah. it is such a catastrophic injury that a lot of the spinal cord injury patients have severe depression and anxiety, and they go through the different stages of grief, you know, early on, uh, denial, anger, you know, right, uh, depression, and then finally acceptance. And uh, um, it's so important for me as a physician, but also the spouses and the caretakers. And, and all the rest of the staff members, all the therapists to be aware of those stages of grief, because I can't tell you how many times I would see a spinal cord injury patient and they are so depressed that don't even want to talk to me. They're so it's, depressed. 
And the thing about that, I like that you mentioned it, is that it's really important for us as human beings to go through all of those stages and to go through all those emotions and feelings and not necessarily just pump ourselves full of, you know, drugs to mask or hide or Mm -hmm. put those experiences and emotions and feelings away. And I feel like that was kind of where I think what Brooke and I were talking about earlier is, you know, my partner, Dan, as well was I remember when he was sent home with a whole list of medications that I had to drive around the city going from pharmacy to pharmacy trying to get and now he's basically his medication is marijuana and that's what he uses for spasms for sleep Mm -hmm. for basically everything so you know it is possible that is a great great perspective that it is possible to live a life of quality Um, without all those pills and medications. And again, we're not saying you should go home and just completely take yourself off of everything. That's not at all what we're saying. I guess what we're saying is that there is another perspective, that there are other options. And I actually wanted to ask you one last question around around, uh, pills. A lot of um, our partners, you know, they they suffer from spasticity. And um, I I guess I wanted to know, my my boyfriend started doing the Botox in the bladder and the Botox in the legs. The bladder was obviously different than the legs, but it does help with spasticity. But I know a lot of people are on baclofen and some of them go on baclofen pumps. What are the pros and cons? And is that permanent? Because I know many women in our community talk about how their partner is is on the baclofen pump. Yeah, so um, so let's talk about uh, the oral baclofen first. Um, obviously, you know, it takes um, a large dose to control the spasticity with oral medications. And, um, you know, you got to max that out. And if that doesn't control your spasticity, then you would be a candidate for uh, for the baclofen pump. Obviously, for insurance to approve that baclofen pump, you would have to have failed all these antispastic uh, uh, spastic medications such as baclofen and uh, dantrolene and some of the other ones, um, but um, they they do have side effects. For instance, baclofen does cause sedation. So now you're on a max dose of baclofen, and obviously it's going to cause a certain level of sedation and a certain level of sleepiness and fogginess and things like that. Um, now, the baclofen pump, it is a um, permanent... Um, um, thing in terms of how it's implanted in the body, and then the catheter goes into the epidural space, uh, and then it uh, it releases a very very small because it's going directly into your central nervous system, um, and uh, that can also be very useful. Now, if if your partner or if the patient is a um, uh, somebody who can use certain aspects of the lower extremity, for instance, like if it's a L2 or L3 or L4 spinal cord injury and their spasticity actually helps them with the ambulation, there are some cases in which it does. Using uh, baclofen is not recommended because now you're taking away something that was functional. Uh, but obviously we're talking about, you know, um, spasms and spasticity that are debilitating, you know, in the spinal cord injury population. So um, for just comfort and for uh, relief from spasticity, which can be so prominent and so painful and so dysfunctional um, that um, baclofen is the drug of choice. Now, whether or not you need a baclofen pump depends on whether or not you had a max dose of it and how effective it was in the first place. Um, 
what I would say, what I would say is that uh, if if somebody's considering a back open pump, if any of our listeners are considering it, um, you know, I would definitely say to uh, exhaust all of their options before you go for the pump. Okay, that's really, really great advice. And do you have any advice for somebody who is dealing with spasticity on a daily basis? What do you feel? What is the best, I guess, exercise or stretching or what is the best way to cope and deal with um, daily spasticity, in your opinion? Yeah, you know, uh, unfortunately, the spasticity and spinal cord injury, central nervous system mediated because uh, of the nature of the injury. So it's very, very difficult to control. And uh, there are very, there's not a whole lot of uh, things out there that are very, very extremely effective in it. So my recommendation would be, as as I utilize in other difficult uh, situation, it would be to uh, have a multidisciplinary approach to address spasticity through trial and error. Uh, there, there is not a magic bullet, as you all already know that, uh, for spasticity. So I would say a combination of medications, a, com- you know, a combination of uh, different types of physical therapy or occupational therapy modalities. Maybe, maybe uh, um, you know, there are some math- methods out there like BOBAP techniques in physical therapy where uh, you know, different types of stretches and massages and things like that. Um, can, can you can try it? I mean, it's not going to hurt. No amount of a massage and uh, physical therapy modalities would hurt you. Uh, the farm, the pharmacological agents, on the other hand, do have side effects. I'm really, um, I'm really glad that you said the multidisciplinary approach because I think society, especially in our community, it's, we've been conditioned that you know take a pill and it'll get better. And I yeah. think you know I think that's so so wrong, especially when it comes to spinal cord injury. What I've seen over the past six years with my husband, the little things together make such a difference. And I think that yeah, it's a lot of work. Like, it's a lot of work to do the FES bike, the standing frame, go out and and you know, propel in your manual chair to get out that extra energy and then combine it with cannabis and then combine it with proper sleep or maybe ejaculation works for you. It's all of those little things together that like you said, it's not a one size fit all approach. I mean, experimentation yeah. is so key and I think it's just it can be exhausting for our caregivers because it is a lot of work. But then when it comes down to it, it's like, well, I mean, you, it's kind of what, what you have to do, right? Well, you guys are uh, the heroes in all of this, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I'm so excited, so, so inspired by what you all do and try to uh, help and support other uh, people who are caregivers and just to have this information out there because somebody may be, well, I, you know, this is hopeless. What do we do? Well, they may read your blog or may listen to you and watch your videos. But like, no, it's not hopeless. You know, th- this is the data that we have compiled. And these are the anecdotal things that we have done. Maybe try a, a certain strain of cannabis like that's more indica like to kind yeah. of help with that you know with sed- you know maybe it will help you sleep better well sleeping helps with spasticity you know um uh, you know or it may not help and then let's try some of these other uh physical therapy modalities and massages and herbs whatever you know as long as you know as long as you do your homework and research and uh there is a 
uh, low risk of side effects uh, and adverse effects, I say go ahead and try it because what do you have to lose, you know? Exactly. And like even something as simple mm -hmm. as a simple hip stretch, you know, if you do yeah. it properly, if you have, you know, I think we have something on the blog done by ADAPT in California, the therapists at ADAPT, this uh, physical uh, facility for spinal cord injuries, they sent us a list of stretches we could do with our partners. Even something like that, like properly hanging your leg off the bed in a proper way and stretching your hip can mean lower spasticity for the day. So it's like just having this community, like Elena and I learn so much every single day from these women as well. And it's just having that resource because, you know, like you said earlier, the majority of spinal cord injuries are, are men. And men in general, this is a generalization, um, they don't sit around talking to their friends about what they can do to improve their lives. It's more the women that we found that do that. Because like we always say, we're kind of obsessed with finding solutions to help <laughs> our partners live their best lives and help ourselves live their best lives. And I don't think men function the same way. So that's kind of the beauty of the group and the beauty of having all these resources like you coming on the podcast, because, you know, there's nothing else like it out there. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask, how did you find uh, the Wags of SCI Instagram page? Was it through Eric or Cassandra? I believe so. I think um, um, uh, I can't I can't remember. I've been following uh, you guys for uh, for quite some time. Um, but I think it must have been something that uh, either Eric, probably Eric tagged uh, because before Cassandra and Eric started dating, um, you know, I, I was following you guys even before that. So I think Eric tagged y'all on something or like uh, shared a post or something like that. And then I, I started following it. I think, I think so. I, yeah. I oh, believe awesome. that's how it happened. That's yeah. so awesome. Yeah. Like we, we reached out to him very early on because, um, he's just like you were saying before, he's so inspirational. Um, I remember when, you know, oh, so many years ago when Feel It Still came out and um, Evan and I, we downloaded the full album. We were listening it, to it on our way to Portland. And when we came home, we we went on YouTube and we're listening to like the lot, some live thing that they were doing, some live performance. And my husband was like, oh my God, he's in a wheelchair. Like we didn't yeah. know. And so ever since then, we were just like, oh my God, this guy is so amazing. And like, you know, he was on the podcast with Cassandra. He's just so supportive of our community. And it's just, it's awesome for him to have Cassandra now too, because she mm -hmm. reached out to us literally right away um, and yeah. just kind of immersed herself in the community right away. And she's just That's been like that. a friend to us. Right. And yeah, so we're yeah. really grateful for yeah. her. And I mean, in all, in all honesty, Brooke, the reason you reached out to Eric was because she was dying to know about who he was dating <laughs> and can we feature them and have them on? That's actually yeah. what happened. Yeah. <laughs> of course. That's funny. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, they're both uh, amazing, amazing individuals and, uh, um, sorry all. And, uh, thank you for doing what you do. This is so cool. This is so, uh, I mean, uh, amazing. I don't have enough words to express my gratitude for spreading the word because there are a lot of people out there, um, who are, who are, who just feel lost because of the, uh, immensity and the catastrophic nature of the injury. But, you know, watching y'all and, uh, your story and all the other people that are featured on the stories and things like that can give hope to some hopeless person out there yeah. who may be a caretaker, who may be a, a patient themselves and, uh, try to get them plugged in because ultimately, uh, it's, it's all about the support system, you know, that, that ultimately 
matters and that that makes the biggest difference. I mean, me as a healthcare provider and as a person, I I do very little in terms of um, helping somebody with a spinal cord injury. Yeah, sure, I'm a director of the rehab and I have knowledge in terms of what they're going through, but I, I'm not there every single day um, experiencing uh, the struggles that a spinal cord injury patient goes through and their family members go through. So what what you are doing is really the difference maker, in my opinion. No, that really means a lot coming from somebody like you. I mean, Elaine and I were talking before the interview about all, you know, all the different hats that you wear and how, you know, you're, you're so busy and you do so much. And just hearing that from you is really, really awesome. Cause I think it provides some recognition to, you know, paid, unpaid caregivers that are doing mm-hmm. it just for the love of their partners and just because they want to have a good life. And, and we don't get a lot of recognition. We don't. And no, I mean, honestly, yeah, you guys are the true healthcare heroes, you know, behind, <laughs> well, behind the scenes, the, the, yeah, the, the, the warriors, the warriors in the <laughs> trenches, you know? Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. That means a lot. I, you know, this actually brings us to one of our final questions for you. And that is kind of like your perspective is, you know, of caregivers and family and, and, and partners of people with spinal cord injuries is different than ours. And we want to know from your perspective as a physiatrist and from what you've seen over the years what is your number one piece of advice um to women like us yeah so uh excellent question and uh you know very thought-provoking question as well uh my my uh, overall um uh, you know advice would be to to take a lot of time um and um and, and put some effort into self-care because honestly, like if you break down, then everything else breaks down because, um, in order to take care of somebody, even like for myself, you know, like I, you know, I'm extremely busy and I am taking care of so many different patients. For instance, like uh, on a day, uh, I see 35 to 40 patients, you know, and then go around at the hospital. If I get sick and I take like a week off, now those patients are are basically, you know, they are left without somebody who can provide that care. And so it's really important for me to take care of myself. Similarly, it's extremely important to take care of yourself, manage, find find ways to manage stress, find ways to manage depression, recognize that you, that some people are going through depression. Um, you know, um, exactly those things, going to the chiropractor, like you said, going to a physical therapist, maybe getting a massage occasionally, you know, just to keep your body um, capable enough to do handle transfers and handle, uh, you know, bowel and bladder program or just mm-hmm. helping your spouse like out and about pushing wheelchair uh, up a ramp or down a ramp or whatever. Uh, if if you go out and your, your back goes out or your uh, pull a muscle, uh, you know, then, then who's going to help uh, the the person with the with the spinal cord injury? Yeah, so, that's right. <clears throat> that's a very very good point. And one of the biggest things that we do also discuss is financial support for our uh, for the caregivers. And the sad thing is, you know, unpaid caregivers don't have a whole lot of financial. Oh, no, right? Yeah, like how are you gonna how are you gonna go afford a uh, you know eighty dollar massage when you're right. 
for cash, you know? Yeah, that's, that's hey. so true. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's one of the things that, that was sort of like the reason why we began WAGs of SCI was to bring more awareness to that. And, you know, uh, Brooke and I, we give away, um, date nights all the time so those are some of the ways that we can give back to the community for you know sometimes when you when you think about it you're like i would love to go for a dinner with my partner but i can't afford you know 50 60 bucks when i need to pay for medications let's say so that those are all really really great ways so brooke and i also say our advice when it comes to self-care is maybe it's sitting down reading a book or having that cup of tea or just having some time to yourself because it is so important and to everybody listening today if you are a caregiver that is very very important to take care of yourself because you cannot pour from an empty cup and sometimes it's really hard to see that when you are one of the trees within that little forest and you can't look on the outside but do not wait until it's too late and you know elena we always talk about this uh, literally every podcast we talk about self-care and now that it's coming everyone's listening now that it's coming from dr nav sharma who has literally a list of qualifications the size of the length of my arm and who works with patients on a daily basis he's telling you take some time for yourself take some time for self-care invest in yourself so everybody out there out there should listen because you know elena and i are both guilty of this at the beginning of our partner's spinal cord injuries we literally were running on adrenaline and we said to ourselves i think this is the biggest problem is women go 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 and they don't listen to that voice saying help me help me they cover it up with adrenaline they they're they say they're fine why would i focus on myself when i can do this i can do this and then all of a sudden these things start coming in physical form and they start affecting you. So let's everyone listening, let's not get to that point. Right. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Because without you guys, you know, um, uh, there will be a lot of helpless folks out there that, that need you. So please, please, please take care of yourself and uh, take the time to um, get some relaxation in there, workout, exercise, blow off some steam, deal with stress because there is daily stressors. Uh, there's, there's no question about it. Um, and so, um, my, my recommendation would be to try to get some personal time, whether it's 30 minutes, 15 minutes, even 10 minutes, just go go for that run, jog, yoga, meditation, um, whatever helps just do it. Awesome. Well, it's been really insightful and quite lovely having you on today, Dr. Nav. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast. It wasn't so bad, was it? (laughs) Oh, no, it was a pleasure talking to you all. It's uh, it's been a lovely conversation. And like I said in the beginning, it's truly an honor and a privilege to be a part of this. And uh, whatever I can do, whatever I can uh, contribute, I'm I'm willing to do so, whether it's uh, donating time or money or whatever it is, because I'm I'm truly passionate about it. And uh, again, um, my passion was renewed um, when I met Eric uh, because uh-huh. I wasn't doing any spinal cord injury work at the time. I was just purely doing uh, spine procedures. But now that I have my unit is open and we are we are offering those services to uh, spinal cord injury patients. Um, I'm, I'm back in it. So I'm just happy to be a part of it. Amazing. Awesome. So thank you so much. And if anybody would like to reach out to you and connect with you, how can they do that? Um, well, you know, you can always, um, um, follow me on uh, Instagram. It's, uh, Dr. Nav Sharma and, and, and you guys have, uh, you know, posted, uh, uh, information also so you can do that you can direct message me believe it or not after after we announced that i was doing the podcast literally 
12 people with spinal cord injury followed me. So wow, um, awesome. So so um, yeah, feel free to do that. Um, if anybody wants to email me, uh, you have my email address. I hope you can share that with folks. Feel free to email me. And then um, my office number, I will share that with, uh, with you guys too. Thank you again so, so much for donating this time to us. This has been such an informative podcast. We are so grateful for your expertise. And we thank you for being so passionate about this because, you know, let's face it, the SCI community needs advocates like you. So thank you again. Um, and anyone else who's listening, um, you can reach the Wags of SCI at wagsofsci at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Wags of SCI and find us on Facebook. All of the ladies out there that have not joined our private discussion group yet, you can also join via the page link in our Facebook. So thank you so, so much. Um, again, join us next time. And thank you. Thank you. Advocacy and Outreach Group, Wags of SCI, is currently a volunteer-based operation. We raise funds year-round to pay for date nights for our couples, essential medical supplies that our members may not be able to afford, mental health support for our Wags, including counseling, and our amazing meetups led by our volunteer ambassadors around the globe. If you feel called to support our mission, please visit our website, wagsofsci.com, or donate directly to the Wags of SCI GoFundMe page. We thank you for your support to help make this group possible and make a difference in the lives of SCI couples worldwide.